From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Marjorie Sensor. The new trillion-dollar infrastructure bill includes $20 million each year through 2027 for the Cyber Response and Recovery Fund. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency can spend the money to assess vulnerabilities, detect threats, and protect networks, FedScoop reports. Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Michael Gilday says weapon production and development must be accelerated for the U.S. military to compete with China. At the Navy League's 2021 Sea Air Space Convention, Gilday called on industry to more quickly shift to new technologies, Defense One reports. The White House wants to reshape cybersecurity management at federal agencies, Federal News Network reports. The White House recommends moving away from a compliance approach and toward a continuous monitoring approach, according to Federal Chief Information Security Officer Chris DeRusha. The White House plans to link this new approach with the Federal Information Security Modernization Act. The National Aeronautics and Space Administration wants to bridge the gap between data and the people who need it during hurricane season. NASA representatives say climate change boosts the chances of faster and stronger storms. Karen St. Germain is director of the Earth Science Division at NASA. Thanks for joining me, Karen. Let's just start by talking about how does NASA gather and distribute its data? Well, many people know that NASA builds the, uh, the satellites that help our partner agencies, NOAA and USGS, both predict weather and, uh, and understand land use. What many people don't know is that NASA Earth Science is flying 23 satellites right now that are looking down at the Earth, studying everything from, uh, from how weather impacts coastlines to crops, how carbon is moving through the system from plants to fossil fuels to gases, uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and understanding how climate change is impacting our oceans, ice, and land. It sounds like it collects an enormous amount of data. How can NASA kind of sort through that to make sure, um, you know, it's, it's usable? Well, NASA has one of the biggest, uh, the, the only end-to-end -end Earth science uh, mission in the U.S. government. And we use, uh, we have uh, scientists who explore the data to understand what it really means and then we try to capture that understanding in models and, uh, and scientific analysis that then helps us predict uh, what future conditions may be. And we share that capability with our partner agencies like NOAA as well. Let's talk a little bit about hurricane season specifically. Obviously, that's a, um, a fast-moving situation where, where urgency matters. How can you ensure that the data you're collecting, you know, um, helps make a decision of should we evacuate? How should people prepare those kinds of, you know, real-world decisions? All right. Well, I, I, would, I want to be clear that hurricane prediction is NOAA's core mission. Uh, and, and, of course, they use their weather satellites to do that. The, the suite of satellites that NASA has can help understand the full, uh, the, the full uh, situation on the ground before, during, and after a hurricane. I'll give you some examples. Uh, we have satellites that look at the earth and measure soil moisture. So we can tell if the ground is already saturated, which can help predict flooding uh, conditions when a, a severe storm or a tropical storm hits uh, the, that land. Likewise, after a storm, 
we can see where there is power outage. We can see where vegetation has been damaged and, uh, and those kinds of, of after the storm impacts. So pre-storm, we can help uh, understand the situation on the ground. Uh, so emergency responders may stage better. Uh, during a storm, we study the structure and we support NOAA. And afterwards, we can help assess what happened. How do you think about, um, you know, future needs? How do you think about what, what, how we evolve the missions or the, or the actual technology of our satellites and, you know, data processing as well? NASA uh, works very closely with the National Academy of Sciences to understand what observations we should be making in the future. And we, we have an end-to-end -end program from technology investment to building systems flying them, extracting the science, and sharing the data fully openly with uh, not just the public, but also uh, other agencies in the US and around the world. Looking forward, before the end of this decade, we will deploy the Earth System Observatory, which will look at the Earth from the atmosphere to the surface. We, will, we can even see below the surface to see, uh, to assess, for example, the status of our underground aquifers, which store water. So we'll be deploying a new system by the end of this uh, of this decade, and we'll be doing it in an even more open way than we have in the past. That means not just putting the data out in the public uh, domain, but also the science and the and the software and the applications, all in an ecosystem with high performance compute. Uh, and this is all enabled by, by commercial cloud-based uh, capabilities. And the idea is to, when we have a fully open science ecosystem, we can do two things. We can accelerate the rate of scientific discovery and the availability of that, that actionable information to decision makers, but we can also lower the barriers uh, for, for people to participate in our science with us. How do you expect that to be used? Um, do you think academia, private sector um, companies will be able to, to employ that data in different ways? Yes, absolutely. Even today, uh, we, we have a, a vibrant earth science community in the academic sector, but also in the private sector. There are many companies that make use of NASA data to, uh, to create value-added decision support products as well. We also work with NGOs to make the data available to countries around the world, uh, as well as communities that might not otherwise understand how to use it. So we work with a broad uh, array of partners. In fact, I would say our partnerships at every level, level, federal, state, local, private sector, NGOs, and international are really the key to extracting the maximum value from the, uh, the U.S. government investment in these systems. Thank you very much, Karen. Thank you. Coming next, an influx of job openings for the government's cyber workforce. Straight ahead on Government Matters, who's going to fill those jobs and how to make it happen quickly. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
The White House wants to improve the cybersecurity and resilience of critical infrastructure. The head of the Partnership for Public Service, Max Steyer, says the federal government must revitalize its cyber workforce. Michelle Amante is vice president of federal workforce programs at the Partnership for Public Service. Thanks for joining me, Michelle. Let's start by talking about this workforce. Why is it so key? Well, we know that less than 6% of the federal cyber workforce is under the age of 30. So we're never going to be able to build and refresh this workforce if we don't intentionally focus on recruiting younger talent. Let's start by talking about that recruiting process. I think that sounds like there's a retention issue as well, but, but why has the government had trouble finding enough of these cyber workers, particularly younger ones? Well, I think you can't be complacent about the issue. I mean, this is a problem government-wide for every occupation, but cyber in particular because there is such an aggressive talent market. So the government typically, a lot of you may have heard of this term post and pray, where the government will you know, advertise a position and then pray that people will, will apply for it. And that method just does not work when you're working in an aggressive talent market. So you have to proactively seek out talent, particularly younger talent, reach out to colleges and universities, provide exciting opportunities, get young folks inspired about serving the American people. Do you think it's a, um, a money issue as well? I assume the, um, the, the private sector uh, side of this is willing to pay quite a bit for these kinds of employees. Absolutely, absolutely. That's certainly a factor in this, but the private sector can never compete with government on mission. So the problem is even for younger people who are excited about serving uh, in the federal government, there's the, the opportunities are hidden and they're scarce and no one is quite sure how to find them. So one of the things that we often encourage uh, federal agencies to do is proactively set up an internship or fellowship program for multiple occupations. One that the partnership runs for cybersecurity in particular is the Cybersecurity Talent Initiative. And we partner with the private sector to run a program to bring students into government service for two years, and then they have an opportunity to stay on with the federal government or go into the private sector. Uh, the reason why I love this program so much is because we know cyber is a cross-sector problem. We're not tackling this in silos. So we're trying to bring a cross-sector solution to the problem. And, and do um, many of these interns choose to stay on? Have you seen, uh, it, it seems like it creates something of a, a pathway, right? Absolutely. So we're actually just going through our second year now. It'll be very interesting to see what uh, this first cohort of students choose. We have, we have awesome corporate partners, uh, MasterCard, Workday, and Microsoft, who are gonna provide really great opportunities to these fellows as well. So whether they stay in federal service or they go to the private sector, we know that these, these fellows are gonna be successful and ultimately you know, help the country tackle these cybersecurity challenges. Michelle, let's talk a little bit about the retention piece of it. Um, is that a, a problem just like recruiting? Absolutely. And, you know, I would really encourage federal agencies to look at our best places to work rankings, which were released at the end of June. Um, we know we just actually released a report last week that shows a direct connection between employee engagement and attrition. So as those empl uh, employee engagement scores decrease, your attrition will increase, which while it's intuitive, we now have a model that shows that direct correlation. So agencies should be really paying attention to their employee engagement scores, making sure their leaders are inspiring and setting the vision, making sure they're having an inclusive 
workplace where you know people can bring their full selves to work every day. This is particularly important for Gen Z who, you know, when they're looking for a federal opportunity, DEI is top of mind for them. And so federal agencies really need to be investing in making sure they have a diverse, equitable and inclusive workplace. Uh, obviously, the, the government is a large place. Do you see these problems um, sort of across or are there some agencies that, um, you know, are able to kind of buck the trend and, and have better recruiting or retention? You know, it depends on the occupation. I mean, obviously, I would say, you know, you have agencies like NASA, which is always top of the list of best places, and they do an excellent job recruiting. Some agencies that you might not you know, think about top of mind, Patent and Trademark Office. Um, they do an amazing job every year. They bring in 500 to 800 new examiners because they devote a lot of resources to this problem. They have a whole team focused on university outreach, focused on marketing these opportunities to young people. And they've also created a culture at their agency where they bring on a new class. Of, of examiners every year. So that that's an important aspect of this too, is like, does your agency have a culture that is welcoming to younger workers? You know, in the partnerships thinking about how agencies can improve in this area, are there, are there recommendations they make? Are there lessons learned from these other agencies that can be, um, you know, somewhat easily applied here? I think, you know, there are several recommendations. One, as I said, please think about building an internship program. We know that Pathways is broken um, and that there's a lot of uh, structural barriers to bringing young talent on, but that doesn't mean that agencies should sit back on the sidelines. There are things that they can do. They can build you know, creative internship programs. They can do direct outreach to universities and colleges. They can work to improve their brand. Every agency has its own unique story. But a lot of people don't understand what agencies do. So thinking about their brand in a new, unique way and how they make uh, students excited about what they do is really critical. Thanks so much, Michelle. Up next, the Iron Triangle of Challenges for the Army's Future Force. Straight ahead on Government Matters, why the Army might only hit two out of three, and how to prepare for future defense challenges. We archive every episode of Government Matters on govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. Senate Armed Services Committee wants to give the Pentagon a $740 billion defense budget. The committee is proposing spending more on Army combat vehicles. Billy Fabian is adjunct senior fellow for the defense program at the Center for a New American Security. He's also senior analyst at Gavini. He's writing about the U.S. Army's new Iron Triangle in defense news. Thanks for joining me, Billy. Let's start by talking about the Iron tri Triangle that you describe in your article. What is it? Uh, well, first, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, so the new Iron Triangle is a, a set of missions or challenges that the Army believes it needs to be prepared for. Um, that'll be very difficult for the Army to prepare for all three simultaneously. So they're first uh, to deter and, if necessary, defeat Russian aggression along NATO's eastern frontier, uh, particularly in the Baltic region. Um, second is to support the larger joint force in deterring and, if necessary, defeating Chinese aggression in the Western Pacific, in Taiwan, the South China Sea or the East China Sea. And the third is uh, what I call hedging for everything else. Um, so we have other threats beyond um, China and Russia, you know, war on the North Korean Peninsula, unforeseen uh, contingencies, um, supporting the 
civilian civil yeah, civilian authorities in um, uh, responding to either homeland defense or natural disasters like COVID-19 um, and competing day to day uh, with China and Russia. So a whole set of other um, missions that fall under this challenge beyond preparing for high intensity war with China and Russia. You note that obviously this would be a, a pretty full plate uh, no matter what, but that the budget um, maybe has not been as focused on the Army. How, uh, how does sort of the, the budget process so far shape how you're thinking about the, this Iron Triangle? Yeah, so there's there's a belief that um, that the Army will be the bill payer for air and naval modernization, um, with even the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, who's an Army general, um, predicting that there'll be a bloodletting uh, for the Army. Um, we didn't see that materialize in the in the uh, FY22 budget request, um, but the belief is that it's it's still coming. Um, so even under a flat budget, it would be difficult to 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 build a force that can that's fully prepared for all these challenges because they each have their own uh, implications for doctrine, force structure, uh, modernization of capabilities, posture, and readiness. Um, but under a shrinking budget, it'll it'll be even even more difficult to to balance the all the challenges. What do you recommend? How should the army uh, prioritize these kind of competing needs? Well, I think it's first uh, it's important to point out that it's uh, reasonable for the army to be concerned about all three of these challenges. Um, there's been suggestions out there that you know, the army should just focus on Russia, become the Europe force, and not worry about anything else. But I, I don't I don't think that's realistic. Um, you know, the, the Army, even if it doesn't uh, provide long-range fires in a, in, a, in a China scenario, which is uh, something that's being debated right now, it will still have a role supporting the joint force with logistics, medical care, um, land-based air defenses, things like that. Um, and, you know, I think it's reasonable to hedge for uh, other contingencies because even if the Department of Defense says China and Russia are the priority, um, ultimately the DOD doesn't get to decide uh, where and when we operate, right? That's up to the, our civilian leaders. Um, so, you know, the army needs to be prepared to give uh, political leaders options, right? So it's reasonable that they prepare for all three. Um, you know, I think it's the the way they really need to think about it is uh, about what are sort of no-fail missions and where they might be able to take risk. Um, I think the challenge will fall hardest in the modernization. Um, that's where the squeezes in the modernization budget will be the most significant. Um, but, you know, I think what they really, the Army really needs to do is open the aperture beyond modernization and bring things like force structure and end strength into the conversation and think about where they can take risk there, um, perhaps to fund modernization, um, and then, you know, maybe use the reserve component like the National Guard in sort of creative ways um, to buy down the risk in the places um, where, where maybe it made cuts to sort of active duty end strength. Um, fortunately, this is sort of why Futures Command, U.S. Army Futures Command, was created was to was to grapple with these tough, tough issues, um, and you know I think they just need to you know to to prioritize and to think hard about about risk. You note the Army obviously can't just make these decisions itself. How does um, how do you think Congress would feel about uh, you know bringing end strength back into the conversation, for instance? Yeah, I mean I think there's always going to be political considerations that. Um, you have to deal with. I mean, you've seen even with with this budget where um, you know the army uh, made the choice to uh, to to pay for long term modernization to to sort of reduce the amount of money it was putting towards upgrading legacy systems to you know improve its capability in sort of the near term. Um, and Congress you know seems to be willing to put some of that money back into the budget uh, to pay for for those upgrades. 
Um, so, you know, I think there's always going to be the issue of working with Congress. Um, you know, I think what's what's important though is for you know the Army to take a good hard look at itself um, from what's you know best from a strategic and operational perspective, um, and then at least bring that forward uh, to Congress and and make their case for why this is necessary uh, to make these hard trades. Um, you know, it may not it may not work, right? Congress may may overrule them, but um, you know, I think it's in the best interest of the nation to 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 lay out the hard choices that need to be made. Thanks, Billy. Appreciate your time. No, thank you. Pleasure being here. You can find a link to Billy's piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, too. You can get a preview and a recap of each show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. North America's largest maritime exposition and conference is back in person. The final day of the Navy League Sea Airspace 2021 is Wednesday, August 4, at Gaylord National Harbor. You'll see speakers from the Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, Maritime Administration, and Congress. You can learn more and sign up at govmatters.tv slash events. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Marjorie Sensor. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Katherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.